Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 53. Hello, my name is Aaron Matthew and I'm a biology teacher at Acton-Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life of the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how they get in the classroom, what are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future. This episode, I sit down with Mary Lou. Mary is a science teacher at Weston High School in Weston, Massachusetts. Throughout her teaching career, Mary has taught a range of biology classes, including AP Biology, CP Biology, Anatomy and Physiology, and Biotechnology. She also serves as the assistant director and instructor for the Advanced Biotechnology Institute at Roxbury Latin School. In 2014, Mary was awarded the Golden Foundation Award for Educational Excellence. Mary has a bachelor's in biology from Harvard College and a master's in learning and teaching from Harvard Graduate School of Education. Welcome, Mary. Hi, good to be here. Nice to see you again. We were, uh, when this comes out, we will actually just have spent our second week together this summer. <laughs> I know, busy, busy. Yeah, working on our. Uh, I don't know if it's. I don't know if it's top secret yet. Is it official that we can talk about what we're doing? Um, <laughs> to tease, uh, we're working with Amgen and we're working with Harvard Life Science on a project that's going to be released in September 2019. Uh, how about that for a tease? Yeah. <laughs> and I know that you're right now uh, there getting a little prep work for us. So um, yeah, I'm glad that you could. I was able to twist your arm. I think I only told you five or six times that you'd be on my show before you stopped like looking at me blankly. And saying yeah I guess <laughs> so so thanks for joining yeah me. you were only dropping subtle hints <laughs> oh, I, I, I wasn't subtle at all like I was like you will be on my show <laughs> so don't worry there's there's a couple others that were in that group that we spent time with um, that I definitely would like to get in because um, you know I've spent a lot of time with some of those people like spent uh, both Todd uh, Ryan and um, Mary Jo were both at the AP reading with me, and so I spent some time there, and then um, then several other people there um, I've been on there. And Dave Mangus has already been on the show once, so uh, as Don Pinkerton, who will be with us next week as well, so, um, he's also been on the show. So uh, you're not the first from the from the Amgen group, but uh, I'm glad you could join. So uh, let's get into the question I like to ask everyone first, which is like, how did you become a science teacher? What led you into the classroom? Well, I applied to college just as a biology major, um, in part because I was interested in science, so I was just regular pre-med bio. Um, my freshman year, I ended up finding a program at Harvard called uh, UTEP, or the Undergraduate Teacher Education Program. It's really small, very little known. Uh, there are only five to seven students in it, um, but they let you cross-register at the Graduate School of Education to do to earn a teaching certification. Um, in addition to your bachelor's. Like it wasn't a major, it's not something you could do otherwise, but it was just kind of like a, an add-on. Um, and I found it, my college roommate also was, was pursuing it. She was an English major. I was the only science concentrator in the program, but it sounded interesting. And I, I once I jumped in, I realized I really enjoyed the, the teaching component of it and oh. the, the, all the requisites needed to get my teaching certification as an undergrad. All right, so you go into this program, uh, you said, said it was called UTEP? Yeah. So you go into this UTEP program, you're the only science person. And so what are you doing in this program that's that's giving you this sort of taste of what it's like to be a teacher? There were some like practical courses around science education, but what I found most useful was my practicum. Like I got to do student teaching um, at a local charter school, the Community Charter School of Cambridge. And I ended up having a really awesome mentor who really set me up for success in the classroom. 
Like he made me do all of the work, <laughs> but <laughs> the two things I really took away from him were the importance of community building and classroom management. So he is um, a former Marine and he ran his classroom as a very tight ship. Um, and, but made all the students responsible to each other. He assigned them in these like small groups that they had to, um, like hold each other accountable for what they were doing in class and outside of class. Um, so it was a really interesting setup and it really shaped the way that I sort of view teaching now. So you are not a former Marine though. No. Um, <laughs> so so. Another thing I really learned was that every teacher has their own style, uh -huh. um, because his style is very different than what I imagined my style to be, but uh -huh. I realized I could look at those things that I valued and how did I envision them in my classroom? Because a lot of the, the feedback from other sort of undergrads were like, oh, I don't like my student teacher. They do this or they do that. And like some, some mentors were probably very rigid and like, you have to do it my way. My teacher, really awesome. And he was like, do it, whatever you want. I think you're awesome. You're going to be an awesome teacher. Make the classroom however you see it. And so when he, he let me take over, he let me take over for a long time and really made me stay the whole year. Like I, I saw how he set up the classroom in September and sort of the norms and, and rules and all of the, all of that jazz. Um, and then he gave me the freedom to explore. So when I took over the classroom, he let me like actually take over. I taught all the kids all the time, mm -hmm. um, that he saw them and he let me establish my own rules. So he was like, okay, Miss Lou's taking over she's going to tell you what you need to do and we're going to do things slightly differently now. And the kids sort of just rolled with it. Uh, there was always the, you know, initial pushback, but um, it was nice because he supported me and in, in running the classroom, how I thought I, it should be run. Nice. Yeah. I mean, that's, it sounds like that you were really set up for success right off the yeah. bat from that student um, experience. And also, could build sort of your own view of what it would be like to run your own classroom when you weren't in a practicum set setting. Yeah, I dabbled in other sort of educational things. Like I did tutoring through the Gear Up program here. And I had done, um, like I taught an SAT class. That was my first real opportunity to be in the classroom and to build those sort of long-term relationships with students around content, which, which mm. I enjoyed. So you finish your practicum and then... What do you do from there? How do you how do you lead into sort of, I guess, what is your path into uh, what is arguably one of the best public school systems in Massachusetts at Weston High School? Sort of how does your path lead from this you know background into getting into Weston? A lot of chance. <laughs> there was a lot, a lot of, of random chance involved there. Um, I was working at the community lab um, at Biogen IDEC mm -hmm. as like sort of a side gig. And then in the summers, um, I worked two summers and then a full year while I was doing my master's because I decided, well, you know, let me just get this extra, you know, education over with since it's required in Massachusetts. If I am going to make a go at this teaching thing, I didn't want anybody to use my youth and inexperience as a reason to write me off. So mm -hmm. I was like, well, at least I'll have, you know, paperwork behind me. <laughs> um, so I ended up doing my master's, but at the same time, uh, working at the community lab, Tracy Callahan, who helped me really learn how to teach in a lab. Um, so the community lab based at Biogen IDEC is a hands-on lab where they invite students in the area and students from all over um, to come and do a lab series um, in their the dedicated lab space. And they also invite, you know, scientists in to talk to them about industry or they have summer programs that they run where they do a little longer lab sequences. Mm. Um, so that really got me into learning how to teach 
lab components. Um, and Tracy was great to make sure that not only did I have the science component down, but she made sure I knew how to teach science and gave me a lot of good feedback on like how, you know, was I considering like how students were watching or demonstrating the technique and, and things like that, um, that really shaped how I get do direct instruction around like lab components. So I was working there and my department head who ended up hiring me had come through the community lab, um, just like bringing a school group kind of field trip for the day kind of deal. Mm -hmm. And I met him there the first time. So then when I was finishing my master's, I sent out my application to all these teachers that I had met and my department head sort of jumped, jumped on it and, and ended up hiring me. <laughs> Yeah, that is good fortune. I've, I've worked with Tracy a little bit because uh, they had partnered, uh, Biogen had pa partnered up with BioBuilder in the past. And so we've yeah. brought in, um, before BioBuilder moved over into their lab central space, uh, Biogen often hosted us for like our opening meetings and stuff like that. So I got to know Tracy through some of those experiences. And uh, I know that they do some amazing stuff, uh, particularly with uh, kids in Boston and Cambridge. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we've led you up. We you got your undergrad, you got your teaching certificate, you've got a little extra experience, you get your master's, and now when I think of you, like Mary, you are in a lot of ways one of the faces of the Harvard Life Science Outreach Program, uh, MGen Biotech Experience in Massachusetts. Like you're one of the teachers who uses all of these biotech resources. At least that's who I think of. You're one of the three or four teachers <laughs> that if I had if I had a problem, I was like, oh, now I think these are the people I would ask. Why is this lab not working or that? So how did you get to connect with? I mean, obviously you have your undergraduate degree and graduate degree from Harvard. Was it that simple that because of your background you already had this connection to Harvard Life Science Outreach, or were there other things? that led you to make that connection? Um, that was part of it. Uh, because I was an undergrad here, I knew about the program. I took Rob Lewis' class as an undergrad who was head of the program here. So I knew it was out there. Connections with other experienced teachers and really build my mentor network because that's how I saw myself growing. Um, so I made sure to join the outreach program, like the fall series. Mm. Uh, yeah. So you have you been doing the fall series ever since you got into teaching? Yep. I am somebody, because I'm a little bit further out from Boston, so I don't always get into the fall series. Um, in fact, like every year, I think I've had the exact same conversation with myself of, oh, I'd really like to do the fall series. It's every, I don't know what they do. Is it Wednesday nights or Thursday nights? or it's every one, yeah. Is it thurs Thursday night? I think it is now. It kind of, it has changed in the past, but I think it's Thursday. Yeah. So it's, every, it's like one evening, yeah. um, most weeks through the fall, and I, I don't know how many weeks they do it. It's like... It seems like it varies year to year. Yeah. yeah. And it looks awesome, but it's always one of those things. Can I get into the city to do this every year? And wow. every year I, I hem and I haw and I look at the email and I have it flagged. And then I either wait till it's all filled up so that it's taken off my, or I make the decision. No, I can't really get in and do that. So what am I missing out by not going and doing this fall series um, that you do every year? Um, things that make it really awesome are that you get to hear about new science, like researchers come and talk, and then they talk about ways that you can bring it into your classroom. Um, the people who run the program are very educator focused, so they make sure to deliver like real scientists doing real science, but then they also are like, hey, well, how can you use this in the classroom? And a lot of times other people are interested in outreach or in developing sort of resources for the classroom, so they'll also plug in places for that. Um, wow. In the past, they a wider breadth of things to talk about in the classroom with my students when something comes up I'm like oh yeah I just heard about this thing that they were talking about you know 
So just for keeping me interested um, and always like bringing in new science, it's a great outlet for that. I live in Harvard Square, so <laughs> the commuting distance was never really uh, an issue for me. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I know it is. It can be quite a hike, but to anybody out there who's interested, it's totally worth it. Um, it's also nice because you get to meet a lot of teachers from Maine and from Western Mass. So it's given me a lot of opportunities to have like rich, meaningful conversations with people, even though we're not maybe working on a product or like doing some explicit professional development. It's the conversation you get to have afterwards about the science or like you've had a really bad day in class and, and then, you know, they have either, you know, sympathy for you or <laughs> some helpful feedback. So. Yeah. And I, it's, it's one of those things where every year, I think it's the last couple of years, it's it Don Pinkerton, who's, I know, a, a regular at those or, or other people will be like, you're doing this, right? You know, like, I'd be like, oh, I just can't, can't figure out how to swing it. And I use my, uh, my commitments at home and commitments in the community to say, someday, someday my kids will be out of school and then I'll be there every, yeah. <laughs> every week. Yeah. I mean, that's fine. And it'll always be here for you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but I do feel, especially as you mentioned, like now the more professional development I've done in Massachusetts in particular, uh, you know, particularly like this summer, you know, going in, if you, like I definitely get a, 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 f a FOMO about this like program. It's like, oh, I know I'm missing. I know I'm missing these talks. I know I'm missing these conversations. Um, but it's also great to know that there are teachers. Um, you know, I feel very fortunate. I work with um, Brian Dempsey, who like goes to these every year and so he's connecting in there but i have i have a colleague who i can turn to every day and talk to about these kind of experiences and i know for a lot of people you are the only biotech or the only ap teacher in your building and it's harder to sometimes have those conversations when you're alone um in a building yeah so. it's true and i in at weston we're a small school so we don't have a lot of electives maybe places like ab um, so that is one of those things, like I throw out my ideas to all the, you know, six or seven, well, in my case, there's only three other biology teachers or four biology teachers. So I've thrown it out to them and they're like, well, <laughs> you know, and I need to look for more ideas sometimes. Yeah. And then again, especially if an AP in biotechnology, like the kids will bring up and push you on questions so deeply and you kind of have to have like one ear out for what's going on in research because the kids are going to naturally start making those connections with things they hear on the radio mm -hmm. or things they see in the news. And if you're not paying attention to those things, it it can become, I mean, humbling in a bad way, <laughs> not just like not humbling in a good way in the sense that, wow, there's so much out there and this is so exciting, but like, uh, wow, I'm out of the loop in terms of what's going on in the biological world. Yeah. I think just having connections in general helps set a good model also for students to be like, Hey, I don't know the answer. Let me ask other people who might, right. Even like when it came down to the AP questions, this was my first year teaching AP biology. And, um, it was really helpful when someone started like this Google doc, question would they get points um mm. someone started one of those things and it was so helpful to me to be like i think they would because and then the, the people respond back no because of this like they didn't mention this like just to give you an idea of where you are and sort of the depth of things yeah the reaching out to to fellows who have done who have more experience in ap is i think actually a hallmark of that community um between the Facebook group, and I know the document, the very document that you were specifically talking about. It was a, 
it, for me, knowing that I was going to the read, I specifically combed through that a lot more, just mm-hmm. sort of prepping myself of, oh, gosh, I'm going to go to the read. And how do readers view these questions? And I actually tried to like learn from that document to get a, a preparation for what it's like to go to the read and look at fuzzy answers from students um, right. and where those points of confusion. I, it was it was super helpful um, before going to going out to the read to get a sense of where people were. Yeah. Uh, on how they do that. So I'm also a person who likes to read those threads as well. So, um, yeah, I've, I've been toying around with the idea of starting sort of a Massachusetts based group, um, you know, of AP teachers who might get together and, and talk and, and get together and do something, you know, once or twice a year. Or we used to have a group that met out in central mass. I think it was like three times a year, but the group dwindled and dwindled and dwindled. And then the support for the group, the the host organization that used to host it, stopped supporting it. Um, but I definitely think there's a thirst for some face-to-face meetings um, beyond just the online communities and have maybe that local contact um, that we could build out for teachers to meet you know, a couple times a year to, to learn about those things, both new teachers and also veteran teachers to maintain those connections with their colleagues, not just at conferences and that sort of thing. Yeah, I feel like it's really energizing to meet with people, whether you're talking about something specifically content related or general, like your experience in education or other con- like professional development opportunities. Um, it's, it's great. Absolutely. Yeah, it's one of been the best part of my summer this summer has been getting together with different teachers in all sorts of different venues. All right. So um, the other thing that I, I put in here um, in terms of back is that you started a an edX course called On Ramp to AP Biology. Um, and I, when I was reading it, I found a, an article that talked about how you were not the only teacher at Weston, that several teachers at Weston got together and created these online courses. So um, I'm curious, you know, what led to the development of, of this resource and, and maybe how are these MOOC type courses sort of fitting into what you're doing? Well, a little bit of more random chance that, that went on here, but uh, I had been taking a bunch of, of the edX courses since they started being offered. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sort of had a reputation for that amongst, you know, my assistant, superintendent, whoever overlooks all the PD stuff, because I kept putting in for like, oh, I'm taking this class. And because of that, I think, um, I, it drew a little bit of, t- of attention in my district. And my superintendent actually approached me and the calculus teacher and the video teacher and said that someone had donated money to our district to support the development of some of these. And she had been approached by edX and edX said they would accept high school options. And could we develop on-ramp courses for AP biology and AP calculus? So it started like that. I think it was like 2013, 2014. Um, And the idea was that we would develop a short course not a replacement for the class, something that could give students a good idea of the level of rigor or difficulty, or maybe even preview some content. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there was a, a need identified, particularly at the AP level, to try to get students more um, adjusted to that level of difficulty, or give them the opportunity to sort of preview some of the things, because overrides and, and questions about like leveling are constantly coming back. But the question of like, well, if a student's overriding, are they really not prepared? Like, can you give them something to better prepare them? So the hope was that these sort of on-ramps would give students uh, content, but also give them an idea of the level of difficulty that they were jumping into. 
So what is the, I mean, I'm thinking about where I teach and when students make their decisions about what to take. Um, I, I think you've just shifted my frame about when I would have thought students would have taken this. So is this a course that a student would take during the school year before deciding to sign up or would they take this in the summer before the AP course starts? So generally it's been in the summer. Mm-hmm. The, I, when, I, when I designed the AP bio course, I actually hadn't taught it and wasn't teaching it. So that was a little bit of a uh, <laughs> deep learning curve for me. Um, but now, now I do teach AP bio and I use it as part of my summer assignment to introduce students to labs two and three, which is like modeling and the BLAST lab. Um, partially because it's sort of complex content, it's good to give them a preview, but also because it's a nice fit for that online platform, right? Those are both things you can do on a computer. (laughs) So it gives them opportunities to work with that sort of at their own pace. So we use it as a, uh, literally as an on-ramp, as something they do before they take the actual course. So you'd be expecting students to be signing the, I mean, we're, we're talking here in early August um, and we're getting, we're probably about that three weeks out. So you'd expect you know, your kids in Weston who are about to take this, are are, are they doing this still? Are they still signing in? They and, are. So and because, because I still run the course, like me personally, <laughs> I can ask the country who's taking it or across the world who's signed up for it because it's out there and open to the public. But also I look specifically for my own students um, mm-hmm. who'd be using their school email addresses. <laughs> so I go through and, lo- and and see, like, are they doing it? Have they completed it? How far along are they? And track that. Nice. And so do you feel like this is, what kind of feedback are you getting from your kids, I guess, is, is the big thing, because um, what are they saying about the course having now been running this for a few years and now that you're into AP, what's the feedback that you get? So initially they're like, whoa, that was a lot. Like, what are you doing to me? Um, because it is using Blast directly and that sort of spreadsheet modeling. So for some kids, it is completely new, but I'm like, relax, don't worry. Like, we're going to visit this in the spring again, and then we can talk again. So it's, they've said overall that it's helpful, but at first it's really overwhelming. <laughs> when we get to the spring, I'm like, remember guys, that stuff you did in the summer? And then like the light bulb comes on and they're like, oh yeah, <laughs> now it makes more sense. Yeah. Um, so there is some, I think now that I've had more time to reflect on the product and it, it, how it's actually used in AP, I might retool it some the next summer to um, include a wider range of content and build some more things into for people who aren't necessarily in my class who might be using it in a similar way. Yeah. So right now it's geared as a three week course, but you may be envisioning something that's a little bit, a little bit more involved or yeah, still in the, yeah, go it'll ahead. probably still fit in the three week range. Um, it's three weeks because it's three major assignments, quote unquote, that, mm-hmm. that students complete. And then there's a whole bunch of other videos that they can watch sort of at their leisure or not um, to help support the understanding of some of those concepts. So it depends how long it takes them to get through that content. I don't want to make it too big of a beast. It is the summer. <laughs> um, so, and I know that, you know, sort of student interest and um, sort of focus will only last so long. So anything bigger and they'll start, I think, to to lose some of its value. Yeah. And I, I know that there's been a push, I guess, a push back on or maybe the Maybe push is the wrong word, but I feel like the pendulum has swung on summer assignments. When I started teaching AP, it was just something that everybody did. You know, we're talking about eight, nine years ago. Everybody gave summer assignments. It was the norm. And I feel like over the last couple of years, I've been hearing more and more people say, no, no summer assignments. 
the the pendulum has swung back away from going to a summer assignment. So is this an optional summer assignment for your students or is this something that you require for your APs? It is a requirement. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I actually, I actually assign more summer work, yeah. um, but um, it is a requirement. And part of my rationale for that is this is a fast paced and I want to spend my time doing more lab components, not mm -hmm. recovering things that maybe you haven't had a lot of exposure to. Um, so if I can introduce some of the content or review some of the content in the summer, it'll really make our in-class time much more enriching. Um, we in Weston, too, are, are reevaluating the place of homework and sort of what are we using outside of class time for. So it is something I've looked at very, I've, I've thought a lot about and sort of what do I assign, how much do I assign, um, to try to pick out like what are the things that I can get the most bang for my buck for um, and not just try to assign a lot of rote practice. It's not that. It's more pointed delivery. Yeah. And that we've been in the, a similar boat where we've been having a, a discussion about, um, you know, what how, how do we frame homework? How you know what is necessary homework? Um, but it is a balance. And the other thing that you sort of bring up in, as I talk to colleagues who are around the country, I know a lot of people who are back in school now. Um, and those kids are going to be taking the same AP test on the same day in, in May as our students. And we don't go back until September. Right. So having sort of this middle ground of a couple of weeks worth of work, you know, um, it doesn't feel as as big a stretch. I know that we used to give a, a fairly substantial summer assignment, which would take a lot more time. And students would take a test like the second day of school when they would come in on their summer assignment. Um, and it was it was a major a major quarter one grade as sort of the the jumping off point. That was part of sort of the legacy inherited curriculum um, in the old days. But there is sort of this balancing act between how to serve students the best in the amount of time we have with them and the fact that that test doesn't move. That test is on, you know, May, whatever, that second week of May, they're going to be taking that test. And how do we make the days we have in school not as stressful as they sometimes are um, because of the, the pacing and the depth of content? Right. So it's a, it's an interesting idea. I, I'm, I'm intrigued by the idea of MOOCs. I've taught some other different types of online courses. And I know other people have uh, put out these type of resources. Um, so I'm, uh, I don't know, when I log in and I start taking your course, you'll, uh, you can see my email. Um. Yeah, I mean, I'd be glad for any feedback you have. I've, I've noticed there have been quite a few teachers who, who've taken it, but no one's ever sort of respond. I've like pinged them and be like, hey, I noticed you're a teacher. Any thoughts? Um, and radio silence. So I, I'd be glad to get feedback from you on, on how you see it, its potential and things you think could change um, yeah. from a different lens. Yeah, I'll have to look at what's going on at the end of the summer and see if I have any time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or maybe next summer. I'll put it on my next summer to-do list of uh, <laughs> of taking the uh, – like because I do – I actually really enjoy the edX course I took. Um, I, I brought it up a few times. I, I took the iHeart Stats course, which is oh. out of Notre Dame. Just as like a refresher, because I hadn't done any stats in anything, and then suddenly they dropped stats into requirement for AP Biology, and I was like, "How do I do this?" And I, I felt like I, I was reading the the way the AP was telling us like where the stats fit in, but I I just was having a hard time wrapping my mind around it, and I was like, "I just need to go back and take a basic intro stats course." 
refamiliarize myself with all of the basic different standardized uh, statistical tests and statistical tools. And it's funny how you're talking about your school having, you have a reputation for taking these edX courses. I think I was the first person in my district who got professional development credit for an edX course, because when I signed up for that course, I approached our assistant superintendent who's in charge of such things and said, can I get credit for this? And they were like, we don't know. Um, and it actually started the dialogue about how how this is actually a form of professional development and we could get PDPs. And they did ultimately give me professional credit for it. But that conversation around that course was what sort of opened the door to taking a, an edX course and getting some professional development credit. Yeah, I had to have a similar conversation with my assistant uh, superintendent. And it, it actually reached the point where they were like, I don't know, can you build like the info at edX.org, like whatever, to be like, hey, anybody out there like have any paperwork? Has anyone come to you with this question? Like, can you help me prove to people who are asking me like that this is legit? And I actually got a direct response from an Argawal who was like, oh, yeah, let me like get up. So he helped me provide the backing to be like, look, it's modeled after this real course. And um, that was really helpful, too. Yeah, I think we we ended up having a dialogue about what type of institution is the course based out of? Is it a verified course? Is it? It has to meet like a handful of set criteria, but as long as it meets those criteria, then our district will give professional development credit for it. Which for me is great because it does provide a degree of flexibility. Yeah. Um, that you know, you know what it's like. It's <laughs> sometimes you have some light time in the spring and sometimes you don't. Sometimes you have some light time in the summer. Sometimes you don't. And those online courses, particularly at the time, you know, I'm, I'm a dad during the summer. I mean, my, my boys are home and we have things and having the ability to take an online course has been huge for me in terms of my per personal professional growth, particularly when my kids were younger and, and not having to travel and, and do all of those other things and, and to make that balance. So uh, districts recognizing that is, is super important. Hmm. Yeah, it's true. The, the flexibility is, is one component, but also I think it's hard to find quality like science and math resources yeah. that are at an appropriate level, but not like necessarily like in an in-class setting. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, I... um, so it really filled that gap for me because they had science and math based things that were flexible, but yeah. high quality. And I also think that it is a it is a personality type. I don't I, I've spoken to other people who have looked at them and they it didn't connect with them. They didn't click with them. They didn't take the course. And I, I can respect that, that it's not going to meet everybody's needs. But for me, it's been a, it's been nice. And I, I know some people who do sort of some correspondence type uh, professional development courses where they send them all the books and they do those types of things. And whenever I've looked at those resources, my eyes have glazed over a little bit and I can't see that being something I want to do. And so again, having multiple avenues for adults to learn, I think is super important. Yeah. Another thing I've used MOOCs for is sort of to give me another framework of how people present information, like mm. because they are sort of live, at least some of them are like, I'm thinking particularly of the 700X course with um, Eric Lander where he's basically, it's his intro bio class and the like storyline he builds, right? Not only do you get to see his sequence and the level of depth, but how he connects each concept to the next sort of made me rethink about how am I framing these ideas to my students. All right. You've just knocked your course down a little bit that I could take a course with Eric Lander instead. Um. Oh yeah, that was way better. <laughs> Are you suggesting that your course is not as exciting as Eric Lander's? Yeah. 
<laughs> his class is way better and it, it's great because it's a lot of the same things you would cover in ap but they're i find that they're in a different sequence than ways i've normally seen them presented because he does have very much like a storytelling way of presenting mm -hmm. them and development of the idea to really present one idea like well the reason we we have this technology is because this was a problem and like this solved this issue right so it's it brings in a lot of the the historical context, which I found really interesting. That's neat. I'll definitely have to add that link into my show notes um, yeah. to, to take that. Yeah, I know. Even NSTA did a collaboration with the 700X course in Eric Lander. And teachers sign up for the course, see their own cohort, and then have webinar discussions with them. Cool. All right. So you've done year one of AP. And so now that, which I, I, I don't know for you, you're, you're kind of like a super teacher. Um, <laughs> the, the, the reputation of you in the room, I'm trying to think of some of the names that were dropped for you that first week that we were in there about how like you, you mastered everything that we were doing and then you were helping other groups uh, do their stuff. So I'm sure year one for AP for you is like a piece of cake and you just breezed right through it and you have that completely mastered. But um, <laughs> what are you looking forward to in, in the upcoming years in your classroom, particularly as you move into years two and three and that sort of thing? maybe even some of your other classes? Well, I mean, what makes teaching fun and interesting is that it's never the same twice, right? Even if you're teaching the same content, the mm -hmm. kids are different. It gives the class a whole new flavor. I try to pick up on things they're interested in and, like, and go in that direction. So every year, like you build in some new labs, you're like, oh, wait, somebody loves to ferment at home? Let's do that in my biotech class. Like I can ask them for things that they're fermenting. Um, <laughs> I was like, what do you got your 15 and 16 year olds fermenting at home? <laughs> Kimchi? At the moment, but I did find a really, I found a really interesting line, um, I think out of like Ohio State or something about fermenting pickles. And then oh, you yeah. sample them at different time periods in the fermentation and, and grow the kind of bacteria that are involved at that particular stage of fermentation as like a, a way to study bacterial populations. I don't know. It's still growing in my head. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I'm, I'm always thinking of something interesting to include. Yeah, I had a handful. I had a handful of years ago. I had a group of students who um, we got into the side conversation. We have a lot of students of of Indian descent in and Acton, and um, we had a side conversation about how everybody has like homemade yogurt. Like homemade yogurt is a very culturally done there and I was like I totally wanted them to bring them in and then find out like are they all the same are they all the same type of bacteria like are they all is it lactobacillus and then some of them were like oh everybody got their starter culture from so-and-so's mom and um I don't know there was like there I, I have this I sort of like along this idea so maybe we'll in the next five years we'll sort of flush this out but like I have this sort of it involves a pun involving culture um, <laughs> in, involved in the lab, but um, a pickling is, it's probably very much the same thing. The same lactobacillus um, is, is going to drive it, but I'm sure there's different species that, that thrive on, on the cucumber skins versus the um, cabbage skins versus the ones that lead to yogurt. So um, I think it yeah. is. Did you go to the um, Harvard Museum, the display that's there right now about micro? Yeah. Yeah. We yeah. went there. I think the first day we went, we went there the, the oh, Friday, okay. then the we did that. <laughs> yeah. And then um, the second time I did your, uh, me and Dave Welty did the, did your assignment for version. the. <laughs> <laughs> but the, um, the night, the time they had the night event at the Harvard Museum, they had uh, researchers, I think at Tufts, talk about how they're growing 
they're specifically trying to figure out where does the bacteria come on the on the cabbages to make kimchi because it's not something that's in the soil. It's not it's like on the plant itself. Um, and so, so how does it get inoculated? Yeah. Like, where does it come from? How common is it? Does it have to be one particular species? Like, is it the condition that supports that particular growth and excludes others? Um, but I think they're out of tufts. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think we've got our grant written. Uh, we got to just get this that we're going to. I mean, so you, you talk about students driving things and you mentioned biotechnology, but you also talked a little bit about AP and sort of the pacing and, and that sort of thing. Do you feel that you have the freedom to let that student interest drive or help steer a little bit in terms of AP biology? Or do you still feel that it's this monstrous course or this really large course that you've got to let, you know, you got to get through a whole bunch of stuff? Where do you feel in terms of, I know it's is a totally unfair question entering year two for AP, but where do you feel you are in that, in that journey? I don't know. I'm kind of torn with AP because it has such great potential. Like it's nice that students get to explore a range of topics and it's not a narrow focus on molecular biology, but I feel like because there's so much to cover um, or, or don't get to dive in in the depth that I would like to see or, or challenge students to, to go to on a lot of these topics. Um, like for example, we tried to do a little, we did some of uh, like what Scott does with the zebrafish and their development. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and they were, you know, watching them and like looking up different developmental stages, but then they all died. And like, hey, all right, we're starting over. Get ready. Like, come up with ideas on how to fix this. But in my AP class, I'm like, well, I guess that didn't work. <laughs> like, write down some ideas. What do you think happened? All right, we're moving on to the next thing. So I think it is more challenging in AP just because the test is the test. And that sort of drives what areas you focus on, which I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I'm I'm actually in the process of of moving a little bit here. Um, so I have um, I'm I'm sort of breaking up with uh, my textbook. Um, that's sort of stage one. Historically, we've always kind of gone through chapters and let the chapters sort of drive us. And we've moved to I, I'm hesitant to say storylining, but it's storyline like approach where I have picked some driving questions, and they're driving questions that involve labs or activities that we do that I find interesting um, or that we've built out over the years that the kids are really connected with and lend to a baseline and a follow-up lab, that sort of thing. And we're letting sort of the lab activities drive and then we're backfilling with content. Um, And as I said, I'm speaking about this as if it is a done deal. It is a planned deal um, at this point. Um, It is what we will be running next year in this 2018-2019 school year. But um, I'm leaning towards, I agree with you about the depth. And I think the answer is you have to come up with large projects or themes or, or concepts that allow you to connect to lots and lots of essential question ideas and then let the activities sort of reveal those connections and content. So there has to be both a little bit of, you have to think really big about the kinds of challenges you want to present to your students, but then you have to have both a depth of understanding and a, a degree of skill to then weave in so that the students will see the connections to a lot of diversity. And I completely agree with you that I think that probably the right number, and next year I think we have 11 driving questions that we're going to tackle. Um, so very similar to our unit structure. And I'm as I've been putting things together and I've been working on things, I, I'm, I think that we probably need to cut that down and get it down to like, 
five or six and really dive in and really, you know, that depth thing that you were asking, you were saying, but I, that's going to take, I think, a few more years to figure out how to do that. Yeah, it definitely is a very interesting challenge. Like before AP, I taught mostly electives um, to seniors. So I did have the freedom and the time and the space to go at whatever depth, you know, I, I deemed necessary. <laughs> so I was very spoiled. And then AP, I was like, well, all right, here's my plan. We're, we're going through all these things. And I t- tried building in those, le- those experiences and it kind of worked, but I found myself like, okay, well, not too much. <laughs> we got to keep moving. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it's going to I think it's a balancing act. But the nice thing I could say about this is in the more conversations I have with people, I think this is a direction that I don't want to say all AP teachers are going. But I think that there is definitely a faction of AP teachers who are leaning towards storylining out longer units, longer avenues of exploration and, you know, more project-based approach to AP, which if you had said this eight years ago, people would be like, you're crazy. We have to cover the whole textbook. And mm-hmm. and now that since the revision and since people are looking at labs and looking at the stats and looking at the ways of opening up content, there has been this shift in this direction where I think there's going to be people much smarter than me uh, who are tackling these ideas and I'm hopeful that through the conversations that the teachers are having, we're going to get to a place where students get to engage in rigorous science in AP classes in a variety of different ways. And that's ultimately what we need to do is that everybody needs to be able to be giving exciting, rigorous science in an AP classroom and exposing students to those types of things. Mm, I know, exciting. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, you know, for us, it's like, for me, I, I love doing biotech stuff. And so there's a lot of cool biotech that I, I build in, but I need to do a better job of making ecological connections and evolutionary connections and that sort of thing. And by learning from what other teachers are excited about, we can hopefully do some of that. Yeah. So my kids tell me I'm excited all the time. They're like, <laughs> they're like, he's so excited about things. Or actually, they don't tell me. They tell other teachers that I'm excited about things. <laughs> it's it's often a descriptor I get uh, <laughs> from my students. All right. So before we get to questions for me and picks of the week, what do you do when you're not teaching and running biotech workshops and going and becoming a learner yourself? What do you like to do? Um, I enjoy reading mystery books <laughs> um, and traveling and, and nonfiction. I'm also learning Portuguese. Um, and so I, I keep myself busy in a whole, a whole range of, of activity. So, yeah. And you, and you you said you live right in the city, so. I do. Yep. Right near Harvard Square. Yeah. So it's a vibrant city, lots to do. All right. So before we get to the picks of the episode, do you have any questions for me? Well, it's something I've been asking most people that have more experience than me, um, because I really, I, I enjoy teaching, but I say that it's one of those things like you do it until you don't love it. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you stay excited in the classroom when the system, like the educational system as a whole, keeps shifting its priorities and constraints? Like what's your strategy? You seem to really love it and you've been doing it for a while. Like what keeps you excited? Yeah. I mean, the number one thing that always keeps me excited is the kids. Um, uh, the, the, the kids are great and they ask great questions and, 
in general, I, I agree that it does seem like <laughs> the rules keep sort of changing on what our job is supposed to be, um, and you can get frustrated. But I think overall, the general direction of the changes has been pointing towards what's best for kids. And if I sort of try to keep that in mind, because really the the best part of the job is getting up every day and going in and engaging with the kids over a subject that I find deeply fascinating and I am still very curious about and they keep learning new things about biology every day. And, um, and that's great. And then the building the professional network and finding people who are deeply curious and like working with kids as much as I do is great. I mean, every time I get to see, Dave Mingus and see Don Pinkerton or, you know, like the week that we had at Harvard where you're in this room and you look around and there's these 11 other teachers and they're just so good at what they do and they're so creative and wanting to learn from them. That keeps me excited. And and when I get frustrated by things and over, overall the frustrating things are you go to a meeting and you're having administrators telling you, you have these requirements and these requirements and these requirements. I try to just, you know, pare down the things I can control and ignore the things I can't and just get those things off my plate as fast as possible so I can focus my time and effort and energy on the kids in front of me. Um, and I think by and large, both of us teach in school districts where, you know, we're pretty well respected where, with what we do. And, mm -hmm. um, and that makes, that's also another factor. I know that there are people who teach in situations where they get a lot less respect and they're treated a lot less professionally than we are in the communities where we work. Um, and that helps me out as well. Yeah, that's true. I, I do feel like I've landed in a good spot and, and I appreciate the freedom and creativity that they allow me to express in my classroom and making sure that I've stayed, you know, giving it all my best and been really excited with what I'm doing with the kids. Yeah. With, with that in mind, I mean, there's also an ebb and flow. I mean, there were times in my career where like, yeah, I like the end of the school year came and I like needed to just get away. Um, and I think that that's, I think that's part of a natural flow, but thinking about the feedback of like, what is, what is your career telling you what you need and why is it telling you 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 need that? Um, I know personally I got into a rut for a few years. I would say probably like four or five years in the early 2000s or mid 2000s where I felt like I knew that there were things I needed to get better at. I wasn't getting better at them. I was getting frustrated. I didn't have a network of people supporting me. And I couldn't quite get out of that rut for, for a few years. And then, you know, my teaching assignment changed and I started working with different colleagues that I, that were pushing me in a different way. And then I started making some of the networking connections that, that I've made over the last, you know, few years. And by keeping in mind, like at, at its core, I really enjoy the going in the classroom and working with the kids and really working with the biology, keeping those two at the center of sort of my teaching practice has, has allowed me to fight through those, those harder times. But, um, also giving myself permission to understand that, yeah, you know, you're human and <laughs> you're going to have good days and you're going to have bad days and you're going to get into ruts, but it is possible to work your way out of them and, um, know when you need to get support from other people to help you get through those times. So, mm. 
So yeah, and again, it's it it is also I've taught in small districts as well, um, and AB is a giant district, so there's a lot going on. Um, and I know that I remember being in a small district, and I felt I remember feeling more isolated in the small district. Um, but of course, that was also like you know before most of the internet had been invented. So um, <laughs> it's a little it's a little easier to make those connections now. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that, uh, yeah, the, the keep, the keep fighting through it is, is, is sort of my, uh, is my advice. All right. Thanks. All right. And, you know, plus we've got to write this grant on figuring out where the lactobacillus comes from. So, <laughs> all right. So we're now at picks of the episode. Uh, so Mary, what is your pick of the episode? Well, I'd like to give a shout out to Backyard Brains, um, which I've used in my classroom. They have this technology that helps you. Uh, visualize action potentials. So they have a, a really easy setup. You can like build it yourself. They can send you the pieces um, that translate the like action potential, the electrical difference signals into a visual program on their on their app. Um, so that lets you do like many neuroscience experiments on cockroaches or even people with mm -hmm. like muscle physiology. Yeah, I, I did the the robo roach once uh, at MIT. Um. <laughs> But oh, it was. Very I haven't gotten hard. that one to work. Yeah, we got it to work as a group of us uh, one year. It, but it, it's it's a very short-lived uh, uh, exper experiment. But the muscle stuff was definitely very cool. Yeah. Yeah, I played I around with that in my anatomy classes, and I'm trying to figure out a way to adapt it for AP. Yeah, I'd be curious to see how that works out in AP. Um, and I know that a lot of um, a lot of groups, uh, if you have any outreach areas, groups around you, there are groups that will lend those out as well because they're not they're not cheap. Um, some of the kits are more no. affordable than others, but um, I know that around where we are, that there the M MIT Neuroscience does have a lending library uh, where they will lend kits out as well. Yeah, I wrote a grant and and got some that way. Oh yeah, that's another another great way to do it. All right. So my pick is a website called BioRender. And so I don't know about you, but um, I often get uh, frustrated looking for good images to either build challenge questions or to present content. And so BioRender is a, a site. It's got both a paid service and a free service, and it allows you to create drawings of biological systems. Um, and so, and they're really geared towards like the paid service is so that you could do high quality enough that you could put these into um, a journal article. And so like their, their services, you know, it's expensive in there, but we're not going to do it for journal services. Uh, but I was looking up and you can look at some of their temple templates and like, you know, as I pull the templates up, the first template I see is a, uh, insulin pathway and it's got insulin binding receptors and a signal cascade and, um, oh. exocytosis. And then it's got the glut four, uh, receptor here and, glucose permitted and glucose entering. And it's it's a really fairly elaborate, deep dive science. And you can create your own diagrams. So if you go into uh, the gallery, there are a variety of different uh, pre-made arrows of different directions and viruses and generic molecules and a head and neuroanatomy and lab equipment and shapes and bacteria, um, transporters, generic cells. Cool. Uh, fungi, digestive systems, other microorganisms, uh, different types of molecules and cells. And so I was looking at this and I'm like, 
this is a resource that I could use to create really interesting challenge problems for my students um, that I like to present them up on the board. And if you're using them not for profit and for educational purposes, and as you say, you put a little tag on the uh, the diagram created using BioRender, um, they are free to post um, on your school websites and that sort of thing. I went through their permissions to see sort of what are the rules about these things. And again, if they're not for profit and you're using them in the educational space and you give them credit as the place where you were making them, they are fine with you posting those on your personal websites. Awesome. So um, I don't know when I'm going to have the time to make all of the giant diagrams that I want, but I do know that uh, sometimes at like, you know, 10 o'clock at night and I'm prepping some challenge problems to get ready for the next day. Um, I, I'm searching on the internet for an image and I'm like, I have in my mind exactly what I want that image to look like. Um, and so having the ability to use a, an image or create an image using this bio render um, can maybe a big time saver for me. Yeah. So, all right. Well, Mary, thank you so much for joining me. Um, it, was a, it was a great conversation and we'll have uh, lots to talk about next week. I know <laughs> as we, as we go back into Harvard for, for another week of, uh, of content creation. Um, you probably know more about what's coming than I do. Well, it'll be an adventure. <laughs> <laughs> well, week one was a little of adventure and, but I thought I had, I had a great time while we were doing it. So, um, I'm looking forward to it. I've, I found that would be a particularly energizing week. So I'm looking forward to next week as well. So let me give uh, credits to the show. Um, uh, you can support this in every episode by going to patreon.com slash lots. Um, Patreons are invited into a Slack community where I do early releases of some of my episodes. You also get access to uh, John Darko content and David Kanofke content once he's settled in Singapore Perhaps he'll be adding some stuff in there. Um, we have a Slack community where our Patreons uh, share resources and see information. Music on this and every episode is provided by Jank Jenkins and X Magicians. Uh, you can get show notes both on the Patreon page and at lifeoftheschool.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School. And I post out all my show episodes there. And also, and very soon, I'll be posting pictures of my kids doing work in classrooms, which is like usually my favorite thing to post up on Twitter. Um, that's also what I use my Twitter for is to see what Bob Coon's doing in his class down in Georgia. So, uh, so thanks for, for joining me and I will talk to everybody soon. Bye.